Good morning. Uh, good to be with you this morning. My name is Bryce Hales, and I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. If you're looking in one of the blue Bibles on the ground, you can find Jeremiah. Uh, we'll be in Jeremiah 2 on page 627. And uh, we are beginning a new series this morning called The Way of Jesus. And uh, really what we're doing here is looking at what does it look like to follow Jesus, uh, especially in the time that we uh, live in. And uh, I've mentioned this before, but the earliest Christians kind of immediately following the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, uh, they were not called Christians. They, they went by the, the name The Way, or The Way of Jesus. And so there was this tangible sense that because the gospel is true, and because the gospel of Jesus changes everything about life, that that called for a response. And so following Jesus was thought to be um, not just something that we believe, but a way that we live our lives. So that's what we're going to be looking at over the next uh, about seven weeks or so. So let me invite you to stand with me if you are able and willing as we give our attention to God's word. I'm going to read uh, Jeremiah 2, starting at verse 4. And then a short section from chapter 6 as well. Jeremiah 2, starting in verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness? and a land of deserts and pits, and a land of drought and deep darkness, and a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, but when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after the things that, they, that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken <coughs> cisterns that can hold no water. Now flip over to uh, Jeremiah 6, uh, verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it. And find rest for your souls. But tragically, the people said, but they said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you, saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. These are the words of God. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we, uh, we turn our attention now to your word and to this section that's probably unfamiliar to uh, many of us. And uh, God, we ask that you would give us insight, that you would help us to see you as you are. And having seen you uh, more truly, we might better understand our world and our lives in light of the gospel of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. 
You may be seated, please. So a few weeks ago, it was a Saturday morning, and I, uh, I think my wife had plans, and I took our kids out of the house, and one of my boys had recently uh, kind of rediscovered he had this ring that had a compass on it. And so we were driving down, it was before Christmas, and I was taking them down to San Clemente to see the, uh, the world's tallest Christmas tree or whatever that enormous Christmas tree is uh, down in San Clemente. And so we were driving down, and um, my, one of my boys in the back seat of the car were, were headed down to San Clemente, and he goes, are we going east? And I said, no, we're going south. San Clemente is south of, of where we live. And he said, oh, okay. And then he's looking at his compass, and we turn the corner, and he goes, are we going east now? I said, no, now we're going kind of west-ish, I guess. So, no, it's not east. And then we got out and we looked at this Christmas tree and it was enormous and it was wonderful. And then we got back in the car and went back home. And he says, now are we going east? And I'm like, no, now we're going north, back home. Um, you know, continually, are we going east? No, we're not going east, okay. Um, what's the point? The point is this, do we know where we're going? And are we using all of the tools at our disposal to help us head the right direction? Uh, fascinating thing I discovered that morning is that a compass that works does not work for you if you don't know how a compass works. If you don't understand, like a compass does not always point north, you have to, I mean, the, you understand what I mean? You have to turn it so it's pointing north in order to find the direction you need to go, in order for it to be a useful tool to help you find your way. A compass uh, only points you in the right direction if you know how to use it to find true north. So do we know where we're going? Uh, do you know where you're going this year? In 2020, do you personally or as a family, do you know where you're headed? We live in a world where uh, we don't seem to be able to agree on much, but it, the, it seems like the one thing we're able to agree on is there's massive confusion about the direction that we're headed uh, as a culture. And so do we know where we're going? As a church, do we know where we're going? Uh, if you consider yourself a Christian here this morning, do we have a clear idea of the direction that Jesus is leading us and what it means to follow him as we live uh, in tumultuous times? Over the past several uh, months, God has used the book of Jeremiah um, in, a, in a powerful way in my life. And uh, I'm not going to go into, into all of the details um, there, but uh, this, I was talking with my wife. Jeremiah, you know, I read the, the, a couple sections from the early chapters of Jeremiah. It didn't sound like great news, did it? <laughs> And really, the whole first like 20 or 30 chapters of Jeremiah kind of continue in the same vein. And Jeremiah gets to the point eventually where he says, God, like, I just, I've had it. I've quit. I don't want to do this anymore. And Jeremiah has often been called the weeping prophet because he's just predicting bad news for God's people. And, uh, and he's so torn up about it. So Jeremiah's the weeping prophet. Uh, my wife pointed out to me that I have on occasion been, been thought of as the weeping pastor. And so Jeremiah, I don't know, maybe God's using Jeremiah to, uh, to minister to me in that way. But as I've read Jeremiah uh, over the last couple of months, I've just been struck by how relevant this ancient book is for us. And, uh, and how incredible it, it, it seems that the situation that Jeremiah is addressing uh, is very, uh, very similar to the age that we find ourselves in. 
And so really what I'm going to do this morning is sort of introduce this series uh, on following Jesus, this, uh, this series on discipleship. Discipleship is just a Bible word for following Jesus. Looking at, um, at Jeremiah. And through Jeremiah, God helps us to diagnose the age that we are living in and shows us how to live faithfully in that time. What does it look like to live faithfully in a world uh, that is changing very rapidly? And in a world where nobody seems to have a clear sense of what direction we should be going. So in order to do that, to really understand where we're living, I want to invite you to travel back in time with me to about 600 years before the birth of Jesus. To uh, the nation of Judah, which is the southern kingdom of God's people. Um, to a little town called Anathoth, which is sort of a suburb of Jerusalem. And there in Anathoth, there is a teenage boy. And uh, he is studying to be a priest. He is in a Levitical family. And uh, he's a teenage boy named Jeremiah. And God comes to this boy and says to him, I want you to be my mouthpiece. And I'm going to speak through you. And I want you to diagnose the condition of the, na- uh, the state of God's people in this time. And he warns him it's not going to be good news. And God is going to send his people into exile in Babylon. And as they prepare to go into exile in Babylon through Jeremiah, God also gives Jeremiah this word to instruct the people how to live faithfully as they go into exile in Babylon. So what's the problem in Jeremiah's time and in our time? The problem in Jeremiah's time and our time is this. We believe that life can be great without God. We believe that life can be great without God. I've, um, I've never in my life done this before, but uh, this is so important that I put together slides. So if you're a note-taking sort of a person, I have a few slides. I hope this is helpful. Um, we believe that life can be great without God. Now, where do we see that? Well, in Jeremiah 2... And really, you know, if you read the first 20 chapters or so of Jeremiah, there's this continual refrain. It's a description of what is happening in Judah uh, around 600 B.C. And it's right before the nation is conquered by Babylon and is taken into exile. And basically what's happening is God's people are saying, sure, God has been good to us in the past, but we don't really need him anymore. Uh, God has done all of these things, and he's been faithful, and he's provided, and he's given us this land of our own. We, we, we weren't a people, but now we're God's people. But now we've progressed to the stage where we don't really need God in our life anymore. Uh, I mean, you see this even in just that passage I read from uh, chapter 2. Verse 5, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? Verse 7, God says, I brought you into a land, into a plentiful land to enjoy, enjoy its fruits and its good things, but when you came in... You defiled the land. Verse 8 says that the priests and those who teach God's word have turned their back on God. Verse 13, God says, For my people have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Despite all of God's faithfulness, despite uh, the signs and the wonders and the just extraordinary things God has done to prove his love and his faithfulness to his people, they have reached the point of saying, What have you done for me lately? God, we don't need you anymore. We believe that life can be great without God in our midst. And so the result of this 
uh, of Israel rejecting God is that God is going to allow Babylon, this foreign pagan nation, to, uh, to conquer his people, to conquer Israel. And uh, what happens in 587 B.C., is that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, well, he's, be, he's besieged the city of Jerusalem for two years. And finally, in 587 B.C., uh, the city of Jerusalem falls, and Nebuchadnezzar and his armies cart up uh, the, the, the majority of the people of Israel, and they take them uh, thousands of miles away to live in exile in Babylon. Uh, Israel goes into exile in Babylon. Babylon is in modern-day Iraq. But um, kind of Babylon as a nation really originates with the Tower of Babel. And if you remember all the way back in, in uh, you know, kind of the earlier chapters of Genesis, uh, there comes this point where uh, the human race says, we're going to make a name for ourselves without God. And they're going to build this tower to the sky. And, and that's the origin of the nation of Babylon. And so Babylon um, in the Bible is a physical place. It's a, it's a geographical nation that existed and uh, it was really like the dominant superpower in um, like the seventh and sixth century BC. Um, but as the Bible progresses, it begins to talk about the spirit of Babylon. And you see this, especially in the book of Revelation, but elsewhere, uh, where the spirit of Babylon is sort of this the spirit that says, the spirit of the age that says, we don't need God. Uh, we're fine on our own. We're fine on our own. And so by the time we get here to around 587 BC, as Babylon takes Israel into exile, uh, they are the superpower in the region, as I said, and they're led by King Nebuchadnezzar the Great. Now just to give you a flavor of kind of the way Babylon operated, uh, Babel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had uh, three titles. He was called the king of Babylon. He was also called the king of Sumer and Akkad, Akkad, or something like that, which was some other lands that he had conquered. And he was also known as the king of the universe because he was very modest. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, I, saw, I heard somebody once that said, the most elegant thing you could ever have on your business card is astronaut. You know, but can you imagine? Here's my card. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the king of the universe. Um, this is the way the Babylonians saw themselves. Babylon is this amazing, enormous superpower. Uh, and at this time, they are essentially invading everybody around them and assimilating them into their culture. Uh, the, the whole idea of the Borg that just... You know, uh, we will assimilate you. Resistance is futile. That is the nation of Babylon. This was their way of understanding the world. In fact, uh, the Babylonians, the way that they understood themselves, they, uh, they, they believed that they had been descended from a race of sort of superior humans or godlike people. And so, uh, like many cultures, there's this... Uh, this you know, myth in their, in their past that there was a global flood and they believed that after this global flood, uh, the gods had intermingled with humans and the result of the kind of offspring that they produced were, these, uh, were the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were descended from these superhumans that had secret knowledge and, um, and that they were more enlightened than everybody else. And so they believed that they were ahead of the rest of the world. And what the rest of the world really needed to do was just get on board with the Babylonian program and way of life 
and eventually you too can catch up and be just like us. And they assisted everybody around them in that process by conquering them and devastating them militarily. But I wonder if that description of sort of a, a cultural force uh, resonates with you at all. The idea that we know what we're doing, we're more enlightened than you do, so just get on board with our program uh, and eventually you too can be great like us. You don't need God, just catch up. We're in control here. Does that sound at all familiar to you? Because I believe that's a great description of the culture that we're living in. And like I said, the interesting thing about the way the Bible talks about Babylon is yes, there was a nation called Babylon, but there is a spirit uh, of Babylon too. Babylon is any human culture that rebels against God and says, life can be great all on our own. We resist God's power. We are fine all by ourselves. And so uh, David Kinnaman, I'll say a little bit more about him in a bit, uh, but in his new book, Faith for Exiles, uh, he talks about this age that we're living in as digital Babylon. Uh, and, and don't get too caught up on the digital part. He's just saying that because of the proliferation of technology, really in the Western world, we now live in a time where whether you live in the United States or Great Britain or um, I know of other countries, but you know, any Western nation, uh, we are so connected because of our technology that really the spirit that we can do it on our own and we don't need God has now invaded our lives. And so we are now living in a culture that wants to assimilate us and shape us into its own mold. We are the enlightened ones. We are ahead of everyone else. And so we just need to assimilate you into our culture so that you can get on board with the way that the world is going. Um, that's the world that we're living in. That is digital Babylon. Babylon, as a nation, was sort of a pre-Christian pagan nation. We now live in digital Babylon, which is a post-Christian secular culture. Uh, and yet, at, at its root, there is the same idea, the, the idea that we can be great without God. Life can be great without God. And so we see that kind of secular myth um, play out in a couple different ways. And quickly, I think you have to understand this because um, it's easy to see this in kind of those we oppose and not see it in ourselves. But really, there is a, a left and a right version of secularism. Um, and I, I, I feel like I'm taking my life in my own hands by just <laughs> going further. But um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to offend everybody one way or, or another in the next... Uh, don't, don't shoot the messenger, okay? <laughs> but think about this, okay? On the right... Uh, you have a political party that would be largely unrecognizable to the Republican Party of 20 or 30 years ago. Um, we have a president who is a, cons uh, who is a Republican uh, who is on his third marriage and uh, made his money through building casinos and a clever, uh, appeared on the cover of Playboy magazine. I mean, can you imagine in the 80s or 90s saying that at some point in the future there will be this person who's the president? Somebody said to me, it's like Biff is now the president. Okay, whether you voted for him or not, uh, whether you, well, whatever, <laughs> would be largely unrecognizable to the conservative party of 20 or 30 years ago. On the other side of the aisle, we've got a Democratic Party that has largely given up on its mission to care for the poor and marginalized and is becoming this sort of 
strange uh, moralism police enforcing uh, the morality of language around gender and sexuality issues. So the left is becoming sort of the moralism police and the right, I know this is backwards for you, this is left for you right over here, okay, uh, it is becoming sort of this like we don't care what's happening as long as we're all making more money. I know that I, some of you got to write me emails about what I just said, please don't. Both sides are embracing the idea that life can be great without God and political ideology is becoming the new religion in a secular age. And let me not hey, be very quick to add that is not much better in the world of the church. Um, the Christian church is not very much better. It seems like every couple of weeks you see uh, some influential Christian who is a, an author or a pastor kind of coming out on Instagram saying that they are no longer following Jesus. And so you could have been at a Christian conference two years ago and this person was the main speaker and next week they're declaring that they're not following Jesus anymore. And strangely enough, in the last six months or year, who has become one of the most prominent spokespeople for Jesus in our world but Kanye West, like the largest pop icon. Like, what I'm trying to get at is like we live in a bizarre world. We live in the, the bizarre upside down time where um, everything has become confusing. And the point is this, that if you are seeking to be a Christian who is just going to go with the flow, that is not going to go very well. Uh, because when you live in Jerusalem, in a place where everybody basically agrees with you, and the culture is sort of set up to reinforce biblical faith, you can kind of just go along. But when you are taken into exile in Babylon, where the cultural pressure is against you, and nobody believes what you believe, Going with the flow means being forced into a mold that is trying to shape you in its own image. You are now living in Babylon. The pressure of the culture is against you. People right, left, and center are trying to force you into their mold or sell you stuff. Either way, look like us or buy stuff from us. We don't really care. But keep that Jesus stuff to yourself and Friends, our culture is going to put enormous pressure on you uh, to conform to this world that says life can be great without God. So preparing for this series, I have been uh, reading this very helpful book called Faith for Exiles by David Kinnaman. Uh, David Kinnaman is the president of the Barna Group, and uh, the Barna Group, you may have heard that name before, is sort of the kind of preeminent group in the world that researches uh, demographics and trends uh, around issues of Christianity, related to Christianity and faith. And so, um, in this book, David talks, uh, David Kinnaman um, did extensive research studying the faith practice of millennials. He was reaching kind of the you know, age, roughly 18 to 35 year olds. And what they did is they researched the current faith practices of millennials who grew up in Christian homes. So not, every, not all millennials, um, period, but if uh, somebody 18 to 35 years old grew up in a uh, church environment, in a Christian home, what are their current faith practices? 
And um, you know, most people think or say that everybody's leaving the church. And um, what they did is they actually studied not just in the United States, but they studied millennials in 26 different countries. And what they found is a little bit more nuanced um, kind of a, a result than the idea that like everybody's abandoning the faith. What they found is that uh, millennials who grew up in the church uh, fall into roughly four categories. And so um, th this is what they found. And th the, uh, they did this study in 26 different countries, but these are the statistics for uh, millennials in the United States. So um, they found this first group that they called prodigals, and these are people who grew up in Christian homes but have, uh, at this point, rejected their faith. They would say, I am no longer a follower of Jesus. And this is 22%. Uh, the next group they call nomads. And nomads are people who they would still say that uh, they're Christians, and yet they're not involved in a church, they're not practicing their faith in any recognizable way. Um, 30% in the United States. I meet these people almost on a weekly basis. Um, I think that maybe Ladera Ranch is a place where nomads have like gathered. Because <laughs> almost every week I meet somebody who says, I moved here 14 years ago and we never found a church and now we just, uh, you know, we still call ourselves Christians but we're not really following Jesus. Uh, the third group, uh, they actually use the, the, the phrase um, habitual churchgoers. Um, you could also, I put cultural Christians there. Uh, these are people who um, attend church with some regularity. Maybe every Sunday, maybe every, you know, once every couple months. Uh, and yet if you were to take sort of uh, even just a mild description of what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus, uh, there's, there's not a lot of overlap there. And so these are people who are, one way they, they put it, these are people who are doing church, but they're not doing biblical Christianity. Uh, and this, in the United States, 38% is the largest group uh, of millennials. And then the fourth group, the fourth group is resilient disciples. And these are people who don't just show up at church, but they trust the Bible and allow it to shape their lives. They're committed to, see, uh, to Jesus and want to see him transform not only their lives, but the world around them too. And in the United States, that is 10% of those 18 to 35 who grew up uh, in a Christian home. And so, I, I don't know how that, that strikes you. Um, the first thing that that, that um, kind of says to me is, my friends who I grew up with in church, I'm, well, I'll, I'll be 40 in a couple months, so I'm just slightly older than this group. Of those people who I grew up in church with, one out of 10 still following Jesus. In a, in a, in a you know, intentional, resilient way, serious way. Um, or another kind of way to think about that is the kids growing up in our church right now. You know, if on the average, uh, any given time, let's say there's 20 children involved in our children's ministry, youth ministry. You fast forward and two of them are still following Jesus in an active, life-giving way thriving way. Um, the, these statistics are, are, are sobering. Uh, more than 50% of those who grew up in Christian homes have just completely, completely left. Um, and yet I love the word resilient, resilient disciple, because the way that David Kenneman defines resilience 
um, here is realism plus hope. Resilience is realism plus hope. It's not just, you know, if you're, if you're just, my wife says I'm a pessimist, I say I'm a realist. Right? Um, you're not just dis discouraged about the state of the world. Um, but you're not also pie in the sky about the state of the world either. Um, and so resilience is realism plus hope. So let me give you just a little bit of hope because 10% doesn't seem like a large number. In the United States alone, that is 4 million people. And that doesn't mean 4 million Christians total. That means uh, in people 18 to 35 who grew up in Christian homes, 4 million of them are following Jesus in an active, resilient, life-giving way. Uh, that's, that's incredible. I'm surprised it's not a much smaller number uh, in some ways. And yet realism, the realism is this, business as usual is over. If we think that we can have this kind of uh, casual attitude to what it means to follow Jesus in our world and just kind of go with the flow, um, that is simply not going to work. We cannot go with the flow and expect that our culture will support our faith because we're not living in Jerusalem anymore. We're living in Babylon and the cultural pressure to... Uh, shape you into the mold of political right or left or just consumer, we don't care as long as you're spending money, uh, on you and on your children is immense, is immense. Resilient disciples are Christians who live with realism and hope about the world. Realistic about the pressures that we face and yet hopeful because God is still on his throne. Uh, and so really what this research I think is showing is that um, when we experience the pressure of living in exile, in digital Babylon, in a culture that says life can be great without God, one of two things happens to us. For some of us, that pressure, that stress, is like uh, putting stress on a wine glass and it just shatters. But for others, for those who are resilient disciples, um, it's like putting a muscle under stress. And a muscle actually grows stronger when it is broken down and built back up. The last thing that Jesus said before he ascended into heaven was this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And we often just kind of stop there, but he continues to say, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, this is where I hope we are going as a church. Our mission is to make disciples, to teach people to follow the way of Jesus. My hope is that God would use me for the rest of my life to build resilient disciples. So what does that look like? Well, the second thing that I want you to see, and this is coming more out of uh, that second passage in Jeremiah 6, the prescription. If the diagnosis is that we believe life can be great without God, the prescription is this, walk in the ancient paths. Jeremiah 6, 16, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it and you will find a rest for your soul. Stand by the roads, ask for the ancient paths. What does that mean? What it means is if you want to go somewhere, you need a way to get there. And so the advice God is giving is 
follow the practices that people have, you know, go, go the direction people have used for generations. Uh, there, there are these sacred practices or spiritual disciplines that have been central to the life of God's people for thousands of years. What God is saying is this, if you want to live faithfully in exile, you've got to pick up these sacred practices and spiritual disciplines that have sustained the people of God for thousands of years. Spiritual disciplines, habits that become so uh, ingrained in you that in the moment of stress, what comes out is faithfulness. That when you don't have time to kind of think about your response, your immediate knee-jerk reflexive reaction is faithfulness. So what does that mean? Uh, does that mean, you know, if I don't do these things, if I don't engage in these spiritual practices, I'm not a Christian? It, it in no way means that. And I want to be very clear about this. You are not saved by what you do. Uh, nothing could be more clear in the Bible or in the Christian tradition. That it is the grace of God that invades our lives and calls us to uh, God and reconciles us to him because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There's nothing you can do to earn that. And yet, uh, the, the reality is that for many of us, we hear that good news and say, I guess I don't need to do anything then. And discipleship, uh, the, the goodness of the gospel calls for a response and calls us to follow Jesus uh, on the way. And so the issue for many of us, I believe, or for the Christian church in our time is that we have reduced Christianity just to a couple of things that we believe about God. We've reduced Christianity to a set of beliefs. But like I said at the beginning, the earliest name for the followers of Jesus was the way. Christianity is a way of life. And in our time, there is no distinctively recognizable Christian way of living. I mean, if you think about it, there's like a, a communist way of life where you wear drab clothes and funny hats. Or there's like a, I don't know, a Hawaiian way of living. There's a, dare I say it, there's a gay way of living. Um, there is no distinctively Christian way of living in our time. And so we go along with those who say life can be great without God, and it's not that long before we are pulled out of resilience into nomads or into, into being prodigals. The Bible says walk in the ancient paths. Now, um, let me just note this. That like, in case you're thinking I just pulled this out of some random, like, obscure text in the book of Jeremiah, this is the consistent message of the Bible. So just a couple of things. First Timothy 4, um, Paul says, Train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. Train yourself for godliness. Uh, the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 12 says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, to those who have been trained for it. What these passages are telling us is this discipleship is not just being like a fan of Jesus, uh, liking him from the sidelines. Discipleship is not even being an advocate or a defender for Jesus on the internet. Discipleship is being a follower of Jesus. I love um, this way that uh, Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases um, go to the next one, Matthew 11. Eugene Peterson paraphrases Matthew 11 like this. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. 
Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. There we go. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. How many of us could say, oh, freely and lightly, yes, that's the way I'm, I'm living. We live in a world that says life can be great without God. And if we're going to live as resilient disciples, we've got to walk in the ancient paths. We've got to follow Jesus on the way. Jesus loves you. He knows what is good for you. He reconciles you to God. He removes the power of sin in your life. And he calls you to follow him, to live like he lived. So specifically, what does that look like? Uh, interestingly, the Barna group, having discovered these kind of four groupings of millennials raised in a Christian household, uh, you know, really began to lean into this idea of resilient disciples. Uh, the, these disciples who are not just um, enduring, but not just even surviving, but actually thriving in digital Babylon. And they wanted to learn more. Uh, what are these people doing that causes their, th their faith to thrive under pressure? And what they found basically confirms what the Bible has said for thousands of years. There are five, five characteristics. Uh, five characteristics that sort of uh, mark the lifestyle of resilient Christians. And so these, uh, I'm really just going to mention these. And then what we're going to do over the next five or six weeks is sort of dive into each of these uh, characteristics or practices and see what does it mean to live in this way. And so again, this is not just the United States, this is across 26 uh, countries, Australia, uh, Korea, Germany, um, really globally. Five characteristics of resilient disciples. So number one, in a we weary and busy age, experience a source of life outside of ourselves. You've got to experience the presence of God through scripture and prayer. You've got to have a source of life outside of yourself. Um, secondly, in a complex and anxious age, receive an identity given by God. The conviction that the gospel changes everything. Thirdly, when isolation and mistrust are the norms, forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. The Bible uses this phrase early on in Genesis, I am my brother's keeper. Fourth, when loneliness attacks us and we distrust authority, ground yourself in community. The consistent message of the New Testament is the church is central to spiritual health. Many in our culture say, I'm a Christian, what does the church have to do with it? Resilient disciples know we cannot do this on our own. And then fifthly, finally, curb your entitlement, self-centeredness, and consumer tendencies by living your life as a gift to the world, especially by practicing hospitality. These five characteristics, hi guys, <laughs> five characteristics of resilient disciples that have been practiced by the church for thousands of years are the key to faithfulness in a culture that says you can be great without God. These don't make you a Christian. God won't love you more if you do them. But the reality is you will love God more if you do these five things. 
And so over the coming weeks, we're going to dive in. But what I want to do uh, as I kind of am wrapping up this morning is encourage you to take a next step. Uh, and so that might look like joining a community group. Uh, that might look like um, signing up for Discipleship 101. We are not doing these things just to put busy things on your schedule. We are here to equip you to follow Jesus in this world. Uh, maybe a next step for you might just look like committing to being here on Sunday mornings over the next six weeks as we unpack these five characteristics. Because friends, this is the reality. We have a choice before us. We have a choice before us, and the choice is not, will you be a disciple or not? Um, the choice is, who will you follow? Because every year, um, when students graduate from college, the smartest people in our culture get hired by tech firms like Facebook and Google and, uh, and smaller ones who are hoping to become the next Facebook or the next Google. And what they do is they, they hire the smartest people and pay them large sums of money to come up with new ways to just help us to keep scrolling through our phones so they can sell us things. And they're trying to shape you into the mold of a consumer. Um, in 2020, make no mistake, every effort will be made to disciple you. Do you know that there's an election coming up this year? It's going to be a time of peace and thankfulness throughout the land, right? <laughs> Uh, every effort will be made to shape you into the political ideology of left or right. Millions and millions of dollars will be used uh, to shape you. They will use the tactics of fear and scarcity and urgency and even manipulation if necessary. Friend, in the, friends, in the years to come, every attempt will be made to disciple you. And so the question is not whether you will become a disciple, it's who will you become a disciple of? Will you follow the way of Jesus or will you go along with the culture and unwittingly become a consumer or a disciple of the ideology of left or right? Jesus invites you into the unforced rhythms of grace. It will feel awkward at first. It will feel like effort. He loves you. He came to call you his own. He lived and died and rose again for you, and he invites you to follow him on the way. So let me finish with this story. A couple years ago, I got on an airplane, and as everybody's sitting down, I got my seat by the window, and as I was sitting there and people are coming on, the guy who's going to sit next to me in the middle seat, he comes in, and he's already got on latex gloves. And he sits down next to me, and he pulls out of his bag a... Uh, pack of Clorox wipes and he begins to wipe down the um, tray in front of him and then he wipes off the screen in front of him and so his TV doesn't work for the whole flight uh, and then he wipes off the seat belt and then he gets buckled and I looked at him kind of like what's the deal man <laughs> and he's kind of a middle-aged well-dressed man and he says, you know, I travel for business multiple times a week, and I used to hate winter because I would get sick multiple times every winter. 
but I discovered that one of the most filthy things that people touch on a regular basis is the doorknob on the toilet seat, or the doorknob on the, like the, the lavatory <laughs> in, the, in the airplane. And then he said this, he goes, I know this looks kind of ridiculous. And it felt a little bit forced at times, or it felt a little bit forced at first, but this is what I have to do to stay healthy. Friends, Jesus invites you to learn the unforced rhythms of grace. It might look a little bit silly at first. It might feel a little bit unnatural. But he loves you. He has come to give you life. Will you follow him? Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that we would be people who respond to your invitation not just to know uh, things about you, but to know you because we have followed you in the way that you're leading us. Jesus, I pray that you would be at work in this church over these coming months, even over these coming six weeks. God, living in an anxious world that uses uh, the tactics of fear and scarcity in an attempt to uh, manipulate us? Would we be people who aren't obsessed with how right we are and how wrong others are? But would we be people who have spent so much time in your presence? We have found a source of life outside of ourselves. That we can be a source of light uh, in this world that doesn't know where it's going, but is going there in a hurry. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. Please help us to follow you. We pray in Jesus' name.